Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. We have a little bit more fun on this topic of eschatology ahead. Mark chapter 13. We're going to read verses 28 through 37 in a minute here. In 1987... R.E.M. released their album, Document, and the second single from this album was a song originally called PSA, Public Service Announcement, and then later it was named Bad Day, interestingly enough. And finally, it was made popular under the title, It's the End of the Day, It's the End of the World as We Know It. How many of you heard that song? Yeah. I threatened my wife that I would sing that song for you, or at least the chorus. She said, I, I don't think it would be wise. It's probably true. Well, the chorus is really simple. I'm not going to sing it, but here are the words. It's the end of the world as we know. And he says it three times. And then he says, really interestingly, at the end, his conclusion, it's very intriguing, he says, and I feel fine. I don't know whether he says it with that tone of voice, but, you know, and I feel fine. This is Michael Stipe, really interesting figure. And I wonder what gives him that level of confidence that after thinking about the end of the world as he knows it, that he would say, I feel fine. You know, much of the world feels, I think, similarly confident or maybe apathetic about the end. I think if we untether ourselves from the Word of God, we may sing something similar to Michael Stipe. But friends, what if we are tethered to God's Word. What would our song about the end times sound like then? Maybe it would be an epic, triumphant, optimistic, rah, rah, stand up and cheer sort of song. Or, or if we start thinking about the judgment and the wrath to come, maybe the song would be more of a sad, plodding dirge or a sort of requiem. How are we to think? How are we to feel about the end of this world? And how are we to live today in light of the end of the world? Now, thankfully, our, our church's statement of faith, Article 9, does a really, really good job of summarizing the biblical teaching. So it's actually going to be up on your screen. I'm going to read this to you. This is Article 9 from our statement of faith. So you'll see it here in a second. Article 9, statement of faith. There it is. Okay, here, let me read it to you guys. It says this, we believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy and, as our blessed hope, motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. So I just want to make three quick comments or encouragements in light of this. So we've spent three, two weeks now, this will be the third week in Mark chapter 13, and maybe some of the teaching has been new to you or challenging to you. Well, I want you to know that believing these truths, from the statement of faith, believing these truths are most important. Every Christian here should subscribe to this, should affirm this manner of Jesus' coming. You see that in the first sentence? And what it means for us. You see that in the left rest of the statement. So we can find unity around this statement, and I hope that encourages you. The second quick kind of encouragement or comment is be open to and consider carefully what I have taught over the last few weeks and what I will teach today. 
Our view of the last days must be tied to the Scriptures. That's my, my big encouragement to you this morning. And so let me, let me just kind of suggest to you, search the Scriptures. Consider what I'm sharing. Don't just assume because maybe some teacher in your past or Jerry Jenkins in his Left Behind series, because they said something that it must be right. Test what I've said in the Scriptures or with the Scriptures. I do think there are some dangers with the secret rapture and dispensational view. I'm not going to spell all of that for you here. I would love to talk about that. Many of you have kind of sought me out, and we've had some good conversations. Uh, Another great place for you to kind of unpack these things is in your community group. And so I know some of you have already done that. But please come talk to me after the service, or, you know, we can set up a time to talk further. I'd love to do that. And my third encouragement to you is this. We're going to actually, Lord willing, tackle the book of Revelation post-Easter, okay? So you can pray for all the pastors as we're trying to kind of think through that. Um, So there's more on this topic coming. In fact, a lot more on this topic coming. Um, Plus, we are uh, going to do a Sunday evening deep dive sort of lecture and question and answer time on the topic of the end times that's coming up probably in April or May. So a lot more uh, to come on this topic. Now, I want you to notice in the statement of faith, we see teaching on how Jesus will come back. Again, that's the first sentence. And we see teaching on how we are to prepare for him coming back. So last week, our focus was on the former. We talked a lot about, you know, kind of beholding this great tribulation and beholding the bad, but then also kind of beholding the good that Jesus will come back and it's going to be on this great and glorious day. Today, our focus is going to shift a little bit on how do we prepare for this great day of the Lord. Let's read our passage now, starting in verse 28. Jesus is speaking to some of his disciples and he says this, Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branches become tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, concerning that day or hour, no one knows neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes, suddenly he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Here's the main point of the passage in a sentence. You'll see it in your uh, bulletins as well if you're taking notes. I encourage you to do so. The main point is this. We prepare for the ends by trusting God's Word in the light of suffering, and by staying awake in the light of Christ's return. So I'll say that again. We prepare for the end by, first of all, trusting God's Word in light of suffering, and then secondly, by staying awake in light of Christ's return. Those are our two points as well, as you would imagine. How do we prepare for the end? Firstly, we trust God's words 
because suffering will surely come. We trust God's words because suffering will surely come. As I prepare for this passage, I owe a debt to three men who have helped me understand the passage. Those men are Eckerd Schnabel, great German scholar, I love to say that name, and then uh, Robert Stein, and then finally Kevin DeYoung. So I'm thankful for those three men. So let's dig into our first point here. Look at verses 28 through 31. Here, Jesus is back to talking about the temple's destruction. Remember the dimmer switch, right? So the, the chapter starts only focused on the temple's destruction. By the time you get to the end, as we'll see, he's only focused on kind of future things. But here, he's kind of back to talking about the temple. Now, how do I know this? There's two reasons. First of all, notice the language. Look at your Bibles. Notice the language of the phrase, these things. We see that phrase, these things, first introduced in verse 2. Jesus said to him, do you see these great things? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Now look at verse 4. Tell us, this is the disciples asking him privately, tell us when will these things, these things happen? And then the rest of the section is all kind of about the temple's destruction. Then from verses 8 through 27, there's really nothing about these things, okay? Then all of a sudden, starting in verse 29, we see again this phrase, these things are coming into play. We see it in verse 29. We see it again in verse 23. Jesus seems to be referring to the same these things from before in the chapter, which is, again, the temple's destruction. The second reason I think uh, this is about the temple's destruction is verse 30. Put your eyes on verse 30 for a minute. Now, the plainest reading of this seems to indicate that this generation is the present generation with these disciples who will soon to be apostles. And so whatever these things in verse 30 is, it must happen before the disciples' generation passes away. This seems to point to 70 AD and the temple's destruction, which means here Jesus is preparing the disciples, he's preparing this generation to endure that awful event. How does he prepare them? He tells them this little parable about a fig tree. Now, this isn't the fig tree from chapter 11, which was kind of near the temple, and he was making kind of a point about that. This is different. Warm weather was coming. Fig trees on Olivet were tender during this season. His disciples could probably see fig trees around as he taught them on this mountain. And just as a fig tree's branches put forth leaves, giving a sure sign of the coming summer, so when they start to see these things, the signs taking place, you know that the end is near and that Jesus, his return is soon. And I want you to notice he gives them, gives these disciples great comfort and confidence starting in verse 30. What does he say here? He's essentially saying, hey guys, just as sure as the cosmos won't suddenly pass away, so sure are my words that I'm giving you here. You can trust my words. That's what Jesus is saying. You know, when you're a, a, a kid and you're about to do something really scary, really difficult, you want some assurance from your parents, right? Maybe it's your first roller coaster. I can think of the first time I walked with my daughter. I'm not going to embarrass you. Don't worry. That was a couple weeks ago. Um, I, I walked with my daughter to, you know, one of those big roller coasters on King's Island, and I'm trying to give her encouragement and assurance. Or maybe you're about to play a really difficult soccer team. I have memories of this, you know. So you're on the sidelines, and that team looks so menacing. And what do you need? Well, you need assurance from your coach, right? You can do this. 
That is what Jesus is giving these disciples. But of course, our human analogies grossly break down because when Jesus gives assurance, it is 100% going to go down. Your dad, your coach might comfort you, but that coaster experience might be entirely traumatizing, or you might lose horribly to that soccer team, right? But friends, when Jesus gives us words, when Jesus gives us words of comfort and assurance, we can count on them. We talked last week about how the church in Jerusalem heeded Jesus' words. They believed him. He said, hey, this, this place is going to get destroyed. You guys need to flee. And, and those who did had to endure some, sure, but ultimately they were helped. They were saved. So friends, what about today? You know, we don't have the impending doom of a temple or a city siege. And yet, we've got other things. We've got everyday tribulations ahead of us, maybe even this week. We've got the great tribulation ahead of us. Maybe in this lifetime, who knows? What will help us to endure? What will help us kind of, kind, of, kind of have assurance and comfort as we're going through these very difficult things? The answer is counting on, hoping in, banking on Jesus' sure words. If we're going to endure, we need a better theology of suffering. We need to learn how to count on Jesus' promises in the midst of our actual suffering. So with this mind, let me give you four promises as they relate to suffering. Here's the first promise. The first promise is this, our suffering is to be expected. Our suffering is to be expected. Philippians 1.29, Paul says that it has been granted to you, Christian, on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Jesus said earlier in Mark's gospel, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to pick up a cross. Paul says in 2 Timothy that all who are godly will be persecuted. Two weeks ago, we heard from Jesus that you will be hated for my name's sake. So our suffering is to be expected in this lifetime. It will surely come. The second truth is that our suffering will somehow always be for our good. In that Philippians passage, we see that God not only gifts us with faith, but he gifts us with suffering. And if it is a gift coming from our heavenly Father's hands, then it must be good. It must have some good in it, right? And there's the, uh, the, the Mount Everest of God's promises, Romans 8, 28. All things, all things work out for the good of those who love him. Here we have a promise of relentless good in every detail of our lives. Everything that happens in this world, from the smallest detail of the most insignificant day of your life to the grandest arc of history with kings and presidents and warmongers, we can pick any splinter in our lives, any disability or disadvantage or disappointment, those seasons of loss and loneliness, even your sins and its consequences. Friends, somehow, if you are a Christian, somehow God weaves all of that, all of it into a beautiful tapestry of relentless goodness that's being given to his church. Praise God. The third truth, the third truth related to suffering, we never suffer alone. Listen, friends, we won't escape the tribulations, but we won't endure them alone either. God is with us 
He is with us. He is with us to the end of the age. Jesus claimed this in his great commission. I will be with you to the end of the age. And that means through every ounce of suffering that you and I may encounter, we are never alone. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 34, verse 18, which says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. If you are suffering, if you're part of God's people, the Lord is near to you. He's near to you. So let that be a comfort to you today. And besides this, besides the Lord's presence, you know, you have to remember the disciples who kind of first received Jesus's promise, they applied this promise in the context of their church, the Jerusalem church. So the Jerusalem church fled the city together. They survived together. They endured together. They rebuilt the church together. God was with them, yes, but the body of Christ was also with them. So what can we draw from this? Well, endurance is a team sport. The worst things I've ever had to endure as a Christian, I've endured them alongside brothers and sisters. Many of you in this room I would include in that. Brothers and sisters who have strengthened me and prayed for me and laughed with me and helped me in countless ways. I know you've got your stories too. So don't forget, don't forget to lean on your brothers and sisters. Don't forget to be someone who is reliable to be leaned upon, right? So friends, who might need you in their suffering today? Be part of fulfilling God's promises to his people to never leave nor abandon us. Be part of that by being available, by being there. So three truths. One, you will suffer. Two, you, it will be good for you. Three, you'll never be alone in it. And here's the fourth remarkable truth. Your suffering won't compare to the glory that is coming. There's a striking verse that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I, when I suffer, I keep going back to this verse because it, is, because it is remarkable. Here's the verse. Paul says, For our light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an incomparable eternal weight of glory. I'm going to say it again. For our light, tissue paper, feathery, momentary, temporary affliction is preparing for us an incomparable. You cannot compare to what? To this eternal weight of glory. It's coming. Now, maybe you hear that and you think, man, Paul... He is so insensitive. He is out of touch with reality. But I think Paul is really in touch with supernatural reality. He's saying as awful and heavy as our present sufferings can be, the future glory that awaits us will far surpass it. If we could but taste a smidge of it now, right? If we could have kind of some sort of a sneak peek, if, if someone could drop us onto the new earth just for five minutes and then kind of transport us back to this life, Friends, we would be emphatically, furiously motivated to endure. We'd be so motivated, so gripped by that vision of the new earth. That's how mind-numbingly sweet our future, future glory will be. So unlike our present sufferings, what is coming will be permanent and weighty and all-encompassing. Four truths, I want to give that to you. So four massive promises God has made to help us work through, get through, endure our everyday suffering. But also these truths are going to relate someday to the church as they're encountering and being called to endure 
the Great Commission, uh, Great Commission, Great Tribulation. I think I say the, <laughs> the Great Commission far more often than I say the Great Tribulation, so I caught myself last week too. So anyway, Great Tribulation, okay, not Great Commission. <laughs> Um, so if Jesus were to appear today in this room, this is kind of a, a fun little exercise, okay? If he were to appear today in this room, and if he were to tell us, jump, and you're going to fly into the air, or if he, was, if, if he were to tell us, hey, toss that ball, and it's going to like go for 25 miles, or if he were to tell us, hey, snap your fingers, and you're going to get some really big muscles, all of those things would happen, right? If Jesus were to s- declare those statements, all of those crazy things to us would happen. And friends, in like manner, when Jesus says, when you are suffering, I will be with you. This is momentary. It's for your good. There's glory that's coming. It's as good as done. It's true. We can count on it. But what happens when you and I stray from these words? When there's danger, You'll find yourself floating adrift while these kind of life jacket promises are floating around you unused. Listen, these promises are meant to be put to use. Just as the promises Jesus gave these disciples, they're meant to be put to use. Our promises are meant to be put to use as well. They're meant to be brought to bear in the very moment of fear, in the very moment of desperation and temptation. These promises can help us endure. So let me ask you this, which one of these four promises, maybe it's one, maybe it's two, which one of these promises do you especially need to get a hold of today? Something you're going through today, this week, maybe you've been going through something for a long time. Which one of these promises are especially important for you to put to use? Something to consider. Let's go to the next point. How do we prepare for the end? Trust his words because suffering will surely come. And then secondly, stay awake because the master will surely come. Stay awake because the master will surely return. Put your eyes on verses 32 through 37. You know, it's not difficult to see what Jesus is emphasizing in this passage. I want you to notice four times he gives the imperative, be alert. He says that in verses 33, 34, 35, and 37. Literally, it says, stay awake. I like that picture. Stay awake. And obviously, he's not talking about, you know, stay awake for your early morning Bible study or breakfast meetings with a friend or staying awake for for a sermon, right? Some of you guys, wake up, wake up, right? He's not talking about that. He's talking about being spiritually awake. He's warning his disciples about the tendency we all have of becoming spiritually sleepy. Now, the last point was a little bit of God, through his word, comforting the afflicted. This point is a little bit of a transition. We're going to feel this here in a minute. It's a little bit of God afflicting the comfortable, okay? So just a little bit of warning. And so Jesus, to kind of combat this sort of spiritual sluggishness, Jesus tells a parable, starting in verse 34, about a man who left his house. Notice this master of the house. He leaves. He gives authority to his servants and this doorkeeper, You've all got jobs to do, and that includes being watchful, staying alert, staying awake. Why? Well, because the master of the house will surely come at any moment. Notice it says in verse 32 that uh, it speaks of this day or this hour. Here's the language 
uh, of this section. And this language has shifted from these things in the prior section, right? So it's shifted from these things. Now it's that day. And I think this refers back to verses 24 through 27. Remember, we concluded last week that the events of verses 24 through 27 all happened in one day. Last week, we saw kind of this remarkable picture of what would happen on that day, this kind of old first creation unraveling, you know, before our eyes on that day and making way for this new creation to come. And the Son of Man, the firstborn of this new creation, he'll he'll be coming on these clouds and the angels will be gathering the elect. Now, friends, this this is a major event in the biblical record. The Old Testament speaks of the day of the Lord, a day when God visits the earth with both judgment and salvation. comes from Joel chapter 2 and other passages. This is another kind of bouncing ball cannonball, okay? Or a cannonball prophecy, bouncing cannonball prophecy, where we find kind of a lowercase d day of the Lord's strewn through history in the Old Testament, and then a final culminating uppercase D, day of the Lord, that will happen at the end of time. So 2 Peter 3.10 picks up on this and says that this final day of the Lord is the same day when Jesus returns. In Acts chapter 1, after Jesus ascends to heaven, the angels say, hey, don't worry, disciples, you will see him come back just as you saw him go to heaven. So Jesus' return is not only the great expectation of the New Testament, It's the event that the entire Bible has been looking forward to. But apparently, apparently, we don't know when this will happen. I want you to see verse 33. Not even God, the Son, knows. Do you see that? Which I believe means that Jesus, in his self-limiting humanity, he doesn't know. God hasn't revealed it to the Son in his humanity God also hasn't revealed it to us. It will happen like a thief in the night. Only a really bad thief, by the way, would leave behind a note saying, hey, I'm scoping the place out today. I'll be back tomorrow to rob you, right? Jesus' return is never described as predictable. It's always described as sudden. Two men in the field. One is taken away. Now, that's not the secret rapture, by the way. In context, those taken away are taken away to what? Somebody know? Judgment. Judgment. Read that passage. Luke chapter 21 says, this day will come like a trap. If you're going through life without Jesus, you're like a little mouse tiptoeing around a big mouse trap. That trap's going to spring soon. Anytime Jesus could return. I think one reason we can grow spiritually sleepy is that it's been a long time since Jesus first made these promises, right? And so as time goes by, as year after year, decade after decade goes by, it doesn't feel real. Like, okay, I know he's coming back, but it's been so long. And we go about life as usual, you know? It's kind of like if I told my kids, you know, someday we're going to spend a week beach vacation in Florida. The first couple of months, they're excited. But then, you know, as time goes by, weeks and months and years, and there's no really, nothing's really happening, well, they might even forget about it, right? So I kind of understand our predicament, but it means, what does it mean for us? Well, it means that we must double and triple our efforts to still remain spiritually awake. Can we still believe this, even though it's been so long? Friends, it might happen today. 
Who knows? It might happen next week or next month. It will happen just as sure as death and taxes, just as sure as water is wet, just as sure as Bengals will give us hope for another year, you know? Friends, one day, one day Jesus will come back on the clouds and no one will mistake it. It won't be like his first coming. His first coming was quiet and unassuming and kind of tucked away in the corner of the empire somewhere. His second coming will be for all the world to see and tremble. He will come to save. He will come to judge. And so as we're kind of examining this text and examining the main exhortation here to stay awake, to be alert, no, what does that mean? What does it look like to be spiritually awake and wait for the second coming of Jesus? Let me give you four applications. Here's the first. Stay awake by reminding yourself each day that the master might return today. Stay awake by reminding yourself each day that the master might return today. Don't be fooled by all the earthbound secular voices that say life is just going to go on and on and on. It will not. All of life is moving towards this climactic moment when Jesus will come back and interrupt our entire existence and bring a new creation in his kingdom with him. I want you to notice Jesus' parable. Um, in Jesus' parable, there's this doorkeeper, and he is to keep watch all night long. You know, one way to be spiritually sleepy is to think, yeah, you know, Jesus probably won't come back today. So I'm going to just kind of kind of take a little nap, right? Or maybe I'll waste my time trying to figure out when he'll come back. Now, isn't it mind-boggling that Christians continue to come up with exact dates for Jesus' return? I mean, the father's not going to tell the son, but, you know, maybe he'll tell Charles Russell that it's going to come in 1878, whoops, or Jerry Falwell that it's going to come within 10 years of 1999, whoops, or tell Harold Camping that it's going to come in 2011, whoops. Friends, how does Jesus invite us in this chapter to think about the future? Notice that when Jesus talks about the temple's destruction, when he talks about the great tribulation, this is earlier on especially, he says there will be particular signs, right? Look for the leaves. The leaves are meant to kind of help you and encourage you to keep going, keep enduring. Uh, this is coming. So in terms of the great tribulation, we are invited to look for the signs. But what about the coming of Jesus itself? There's no signs. It will happen suddenly, unexpectedly, and no one can predict it. Jesus says, be like the doorkeeper who is prepared for, for Jesus or the master of the house to return at any moment. And so every day as, as you and I wake up and begin our days, grab a cup of coffee, open up our Bibles maybe, talk to our kids, let me invite you to think about this. Consider this thought. Maybe today is the day he comes back. I need to be ready. Maybe today is the day that Jesus will return. I need to be ready. Wouldn't that single thought revolutionize your days? Number two, second application here. How do we stay awake? We stay awake by pursuing holy living. We stay awake by pursuing holy living. Spiritually sleepy people are less vigilant about their sin. They experience less conviction over their sin. You know, we all go through seasons of complacency, of course, with our sin. 
You know, there was that time I, I used to fight sin. I didn't tolerate it. I hated it. I felt kind of a prick of conscience. Now I feel kind of lethargic towards it. I mean, I'm not letting it get crazy. I kind of manage it a little bit, but I'm also not really fighting it. Listen to Titus 2, verse 12 and 13. The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. As we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing in glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 3 says that since Jesus is coming, quote, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of the Lord. And then later he says, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight. Make every effort. Friends, if you knew Jesus was coming back and would kind of walk in on you in the middle of some small or medium or serious sin, would you look at such things on the internet? Would you say those few gossipy words? Would you speak harshly? Would you choose to neglect your spouse? Oh, it's just a little thing. It's a little bit of selfishness. Would you fudge with the numbers in the office? Would you embrace a sort of demanding attitude and you kind of rationalize it because, hey, I've just had a rough day. I've had a rough week. I can be a little demanding, a little bit of me time. Growing spiritually means seeing God's holiness more clearly and in the wake of that, seeing our own sin more clearly, which means a heart that will be quick to repent. Brothers and sisters, are you quick to repent? Are you quick to repent? Do you repent early and often? Would that describe you? Let me ask you some other questions. When was the last time you confessed a specific sin to God or to others that you have sinned against? When was the last time you changed your mind about something? Maybe after a sermon or after some Bible reading or after a small group Bible study. The word is convicting you. When was the last time you intentionally put off a sinful attitude and put on a corresponding godly virtue? We're trying to help one of our sons do this. Put off some complaining and put on some gratefulness. And this happened just a few days ago. We're right in the middle of just kind of this tirade of complaints. I said, you know, okay, you know, kind of tried to stop him. And then I said, hey, what's one thing you're grateful for? And he was like, you know, and just kind of drawing. And, and then there's this like little smile on his face that just kind of started to appear. Now, he didn't have an answer. You know, he's still working on him a little bit. But that sort of interruption is just a little picture to me of what I ought to be doing with my sin, putting off putting on. When is the last time you did that? When's the last time you did that? Number three, stay awake by faithfully discharging your God-given duties. Notice verse 34 again. It's like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work. Jesus has left us work to do. So listen, Jesus will not be disappointed with you if he comes back and he finds you faithfully doing the dishes or faithfully changing a diaper or faithfully reading to your grandchild or faithfully folding your laundry or faithfully working on your house or faithfully studying for a test, 
or faithfully eating a meal with a friend or faithfully walking your dog or faithfully cleaning your garage or faithfully calling a plumber or faithfully mowing the lawn. We each have our work, which is, of course, derived from our roles and our vocations, right? So preparing for Jesus to come doesn't mean dropping the normal things that keep us alive and keep our families alive and only doing the radical things for Jesus. The ordinary life faithfully executed in a Christian way is extraordinary and radical and pleasing to the master of the house. Don't forget that. Now, to balance that, I've got to say this last one, okay? Number four, stay awake by urgently investing in eternal things. We stay awake, friends, by not wasting our lives on frivolous things. Don Whitney um, crafted these questions for Christians to answer at the end of each year, kind of self-evaluation questions. Here's one of the questions. Uh, what, what's the single biggest time waster in your life, and what will you do about it this year? Well, that's just like, I don't know about you, but that, when I read that with my wife in December, it's like, that just kind of hits me, right? Like, I mean, we live in a society that presents us with too many options and too many opportunities, which really mean too many distractions. Do you remember the parable of the talents? Master leaves and gives his servants different talents, which are monetary units. Talents here don't only represent kind of personal gifts or finances, but more broadly, just opportunities. We don't all have the same opportunities and abilities and gifts and finances, but God, as the master comes back, God expects some return that we would be good stewards, something to show for ourselves when Jesus comes back. And so, yes, there is more to being a Christian than just having a squeaky clean moral life or just doing the normal human things. God asks us to not waste our life. He wants us to invest in eternal things, not just earthly things. Think about the man who buried his one talent and then, you know, Jesus came back and he's like, you know, unearths it and he grabs it. He's like, Jesus, welcome back. Here you go. You know, I was safe, wasn't it? He didn't lose anything. Do you know what Jesus does to that man? He casts him into utter darkness. So one of the marks of a true Christian, according to that passage, must be that you're not going to live a safe life but you're going to risk for the cause of Christ. You're going to invest your life and sacrifice your life and spill yourself for Jesus. You weren't really following me. I mean, you didn't attempt something for me. You didn't risk anything for me. Jesus, you know, welcome back. Let me show you my boat. My kids, they're pretty good kids. I've got some savings in my account. I'm really good at fantasy football. Never robbed a bank. Friends, God doesn't want us to live safe lives. He wants us to risk and invest for the cause of Christ and the building up of his church in this life. So in light of the second coming of Jesus, are you sharing the good news of Jesus Christ boldly and urgently? Because this day of the Lord is coming, and it's not just a day of salvation. It's also a day of judgment. It's coming. As you look around your brothers and sisters here at Faith Church, are you intentionally making disciples, doing spiritual good to each other, trying to help each other endure, 
believe those promises? Are you investing financially in eternal things? Are you setting up your schedule that, uh, so, such that it reflects the second coming of Jesus? Listen, it doesn't matter that your kid is amazing at basketball. So one thing we must realize with the great tribulation and the coming of Jesus, there is a time limit. One day the master of the house will return. So don't delay getting serious about God. Don't delay. Don't nurture a spiritual sort of apathy, which can be so poisonous for us today. Maybe you're thinking, you know, I'm going to get serious later. Uh, When I have more time, you know, the kids get older, when life is a little bit more stable. Friends, we don't know how long we have. In Matthew 24, Jesus speaks about the times of Noah, and he describes those times when the people of the land lived as if God didn't exist. And they looked at Noah, and they thought he was a complete fool. Why is this guy building a boat? This guy's a moron. And so they ate, and they drank, and they were merry in those days. They did whatever they pleased. They believed they were secure. Nothing could threaten their existence. And then the flood came. Today, many people live like functional atheists. God promises that on that day that if you ignored him for a lifetime, you will wish you had paid attention to him now. And today, Jesus has an incredible offer for us. He offers you the ark of his salvation. Today, Jesus offers you unimaginable spiritual blessings and safety, the right kind of safety, forgiveness of sins, a peace that surpasses understanding, the possibility of living in a right relationship with God. This is what Jesus offers you. And listen, you can grab a hold of of all of these blessings today through faith and repentance. And if you do that, you will be in the ark, so to speak, on that final day of the Lord. You will be safe. You will be gathered up by the angels and brought safely to Jesus. So make today the day of your salvation. Do not delay. Do not delay. We are saved. Let me just make this utterly clear. We are not saved by our works. We are not saved by our spiritual resumes. We are not saved by our giving statements or by our church attendance. We are saved by grace alone, through faith. That's how we are saved. So let me encourage you with that. If you're not a Christian here today, you're so welcome. But I want you, I want you to consider this good news. And for those who are Christians in this room, we prepare for this end, this great tribulation and the second coming of Jesus. We prepare by taking up our cross, by trusting God's promises, and by staying awake. May these things mark us this week. Amen. Let's take a few moments now to uh, consider the passage and prepare our, our hearts for the Lord's Supper.